Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast, now in association with the Songbird HQ. Go to the songbirdhq.com for all your musical needs, latest news, reviews and interviews with some of the best signed and unsigned bands. The Songbird HQ also deliver PR services for new talent coming through. This week's guest is Jack Horner, also known as Leon the Pig Farmer. I spoke to Jack about his early life growing up and how his struggles with PTSD after leaving the army led him into spoken word. We spoke about his work under the pseudonym Leon the Pig Farmer as well as the band he fronts with his wife called The Dirt who are due to release an album this April. We spoke about all this plus a whole lot more and at the end picked his heroes to come for dinner. Hope you all enjoy this episode of the, the podcast. I'll be back soon with another. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This week we have Jack Horner, also known as Leon the Pig Farmer. And you've got a band with your wife as well called The Dirt. That's so, right. We're going to get into all of this over the course of the interview, um, but I like to kind of just get back to the, the start about your early life growing up and how you came to be Leon the Pig Farmer. Right. Um, therapy reckons it started at seven. <laughs> uh, yeah, it did. Uh, my dad left at seven um, in 1978, I think it would have been. Um, I was an early 70s child. I grew up on a working class council estate in a market town in the middle of nowhere in North Yorkshire. Um, my mum brought us up single-handedly, me and my younger sister. Um, I was mad about football. I was mad about sport. And I, I've been discussing this quite a lot recently, that when you go to a, a quite a, a centrist school, um, because you play football and you can run quick, you get shoved into sports academia side of it that side very quickly um so the 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 art side of it even if you wanted to get involved with was was kind of not really going about because my mum could never afford a musical instrument or anything like that in the 70s yeah. and 80s so i it was easier for me to put on a pair of trainers and play football and and i got relatively good at it and that's what i wanted to do as a career um unfortunately a couple of clubs told me i wasn't good enough <laughs> so i'm too small <laughs> back in those days i was only i'm only five seven so um I joined the army. Um, my mum did remarry, who's my stepdad now to this day, he's solid as a rock and he's brilliant. Um, but there was a lot of lost years, which clearly had a detrimental effect mentally. And then I joined the army to find a, a new band of brothers, for want of a better cliche. And um, I had a great 10 years, spent a lot of it in Northern Ireland mm -hmm. and a lot of it in Africa working because I was doing a lot of close protection, working for the foreign office. And that was my kind of role within the, the army. I was either working in, physical training or um, intelligence in Ireland or um, close protection. Um, and that was kind of my path going through 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 the career, really. Um, Which and is then, quite uh, different. I mean, there, there can't be many um, people in the kind of creative arts industry that kind of started out in the army. Uh, there's not many. I've met a few. I've met a guy who runs some theatre stuff down in London. Um, I know a mate of mine who's plays in a couple of heavy band, rock bands, but there's not many. I think, um, especially the army, it, it narrows your mind 
the only one I can think of is um, James Blunt. I don't know how how friendly you are with him. Oh no! But yeah. he he took a different career path in the army. He was a quite a he's from a very affluent family, I think, and he, he was yeah. a captain in 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 some lot of tanky regiment or something. So, um, he he took a different career path in the military than what than what I did. Uh, but yeah, I think people may have had it before they joined, but the typical thing about the military is it it restricts your mind thought because you put through basic training and you're taught to think in a very s- simple, similar way. And it restricts your um, artistic outlook because you keep your thoughts very close to yourself because of what other people might think. And you're, you're in a very masculine environment. Um, and if you're into the arts, then you're going to get a bit ostracised rather than going involved with the football, the drinking, the rugby, the, the sporty side of it and the stress relief on that side. So although it's very interesting music and I met a lot of guys that were involved in the alternative indie side of music, um, the arts wasn't very well promoted and, and certainly mental health recovery through the arts was, was even unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of found and reconnected because I was into doing artist as, as a doing painting stuff. Uh, I even got, I'm just going to show my age now, an O-level in art. So I'm showing like how, how old I am that I'm pre-GCSE. <laughs> um, so um, I got a, like art was one of the things I really enjoyed in school as well as sport. And I guess... I reconnected with that. And when I was going through my breakdown, which was started four years ago on Thursday, I woke up in a police station, which we'll go on to probably. Um, I, um, so the anniversary is coming up. My parents were doing stuff like me and Googling. And art and creativity was one of the things they said is really good for mental health and reconnecting with yourself. And uh-huh. I, guess luckily, I guess luckily I was into art and I was into music very intensely as a child growing up because my solace we didn't have playstations back then do we so my my bedroom sort of like safe zone was vinyl and playing music so lyrics um analyzing lyrics from bands of the late 70s new wave coming through in the 80s and and then the the alternative music that that came out then lyrics were as important to me as what the sound was so i've always been very keen on on uh, lyrical content and I guess that's the part that I reconnected with uh, four years ago when I started my creative writing journey. So, yeah, uh, in a nutshell, I think we've answered that. Yeah, but the, I think I think the military stifles your mindset and narrows your thought process down. Um, yeah, inten- intentionally through basic training because you you can't like I always ask questions um, and I always provoke an answer. Uh, and that can't be done in a contact situation. So I totally understand that when bullets are flying, you can't put your hand up and say, excuse me, I don't agree with this. Can we go left, not right? Ain't got time for that. So I get that you've got to be very stringent and structured in, in contact and military situations. But with that, with how the, I guess how the mind works, it restricts your artistic content or your personality in other ways. Mm-hmm. And, and I know for the 10 years, I probably, um, apart from going and watching bands, certainly didn't have any artistic flow in me for the for the for the time that I was involved in other things apart from reading. So obviously yeah we're diagnosed with PTSD. Yeah. How how long was that after you came out of the army that kind of 20 years. 20 years. 20 years, yeah. I'd I'd left the army um I'd worked in a lot of jobs office based and working for the government agencies. Uh, because of my background in close protection and intelligence gathering and stuff like that. Um, 
And I guess um, my life, especially working a lot of it, was Monday to Friday. Um, I bottled it up with from Thursday through to Sunday, just binge drinking. I was going to watching loads of bands. I was going out watching the football. Um, and literally come Thursday night when we had a vinyl night at the local pub, that would be the start. And then Friday, I'd smash it. All day Saturday, I'd smash it. Sunday afternoon, there'd be a match on in the local pub. I'd smash it. And ironically, I'd stop drinking around six o'clock because I knew I had to get up to drive a car the next morning. So there was a sense within my binge drinking. <laughs> there was a sense of safety. However, um, the day that I woke up in a police cell the night before, I drove my car pissed because I had a severe disassociation syndrome of half an episode through the syndrome of half an hour that I'd kind of, it's like sleepwalking. I'd gone into mm -hmm. uh, a stress zone and I'd gone into disassociation, which I'd been doing throughout the 20 years in very short episodes. But right. I did, I just thought I was pissed and I'd forgotten half an hour, an hour of my life when really there was more to it. Um, and I used to always clench and grind. I had tight shoulders. I thought I had frozen shoulders. I'm, I'm loose as ever now. Um, all that's gone. Um, I, I'd grind my teeth. I'd have headaches and temple aches. And for the last five years building up, especially when I'd gone, I'd say, chronic on binge drinking, um, so far as saying I've been told that I was an alcoholic, it's just I managed to not drink for four days of the, or three or four days of the week mm -hmm. um, to hold down a functioning job. Um, that I kind of agree with that, that come Thursday, I was gagging for a pint. So the, and that was a mental, <laughs> that, that, that was mentally as well as the stress and, and the things I was bottling up through through the years, because I had seen a, a lot of horrible stuff, especially in Africa, a lot of um, de serious deprivation, a lot of serious bodies on the street. Um, I'd been in Rwanda mm -hmm. just post-genocide, and I'd, sit, I'd been shot, mortared and bombed in Ireland, um, very close contact. I had a friend that had his... Uh, pelvis blown out from a sniper so i'd be very close to serious contact trauma and i put it down as well you're all right you've got about another three lives left if you're a cat you're doing all right you've, you know, and you're in a safe office style mm -hmm. environment so you're not you there's no chance of you losing those last three lives or whatever but um i certainly came close four years ago when i woke up in the clink so it was um i think i was starting to run out of lives and it was a case of a life reform and change it was mm -hmm. coming and, sure. and, and i when you came out of the army, did it yeah. did he offer any kind of therapy then when you came out? Nothing. There's there was nothing, nothing. Nothing. That was you, late 90s, there was nothing. And I I personally believe now that if everybody comes back from a six-month tour in Ireland or when they were in Afghanistan and Iraq, there should have been a counselling session of some kind to assess. And I know there's thousands coming back. But it's it comes down to health and it, under health and safety executive laws and stuff because uh -huh. you're working out out the out the country and because you, you're literally dealing with the most extreme pressure, the most extreme fear. The most it's it's what what got me was the catastrophization that I hadn't realized that was embedded in my head that every time I walked out my house, I built up this pattern to secure that nothing would go wrong. Because like every time I walked out the gates of Four Kill in South Armagh, there was a good chance there was going to be a sniper, there was going to be a chance there was going to be a, a covert booby trap, there was going to be something. So I was at higher sense than ever. And I'd lived that life constantly for almost 10 years. So to okay. do that just to go is impossible. So that high level of sensitivity continued into 
my private life and became catastrophization in other things would be relationships they're always going to go wrong would be family they don't want to know me would be work i'm going to lose my job would be anything so the catastrophization and the risk of fear of things going wrong just continued and it got so far out of control that that is when the panic and the anxiety kicked in and then i became a, very much a sufferer of anxiety and the only way to stop it was to get i found to get pissed and put on a show and put on a front yeah. of, a guy that, of a guy that walked around in top clubber who had a really good haircut who listened to good music was a man on the town and and i hid behind that so that people liked me for a different reason but there was never going to be anything that would go wrong mm-hmm. and, and and all this kind of came out in therapy and i went yeah I, I connect with that i understand that so there is nothing I don't I don't even know if there is now because I don't connect too much with the army I do speak with veterans and I know there's a lot of charities out there I work with company of makers I'm doing a speaking workshop with them there's loads of places around the country that help veterans post employment Uh but I don't think when you're in there that there's there's that much because it's such even the females are in there that there is such a masculine toxic environment of bravado of bravery of puffing the chest out of being Mm masculine and impenetrable which is true it, it sounds crazy because obviously i mean i was off my work there for two months mm. um, and i just went back in january and i've had like um three counseling appointments yeah just to help me get back to my work and i'm yeah. just a, i'm just a running the mill postman and yet coming out the army something where you're obviously going to see a lot of trauma and it'd be nothing there in place it's it's crazy man I, I when I left, I got offered resettlement and, and they get given a little bit of money. It's not massive, but you can retrade. So they look at getting you an employment, which helps part of the way. But when you leave the army, there's the other things that, that when you get your pay packet, your accommodation's been took out, your food's been took out, you've got no electricity worries, you've got nothing to worry about. Whatever is left in that bank that comes in is free spend, it's disposable income because they've looked mm-hmm. after everything. And I think when a lot of servicemen come out now they're not used to coping in civvy street in the real world because they don't know how much nowadays especially how much electricity water gas um your petrol how much everything that you then have in employment cost there is nothing that tells you or, or prepares you for that now if you've got a hidden trauma going on behind and you cope with alcohol with it you ain't heading in the right direction. You're, you're going to end up either on the streets, you're going to end up in a hostel, which happens a lot with ex-servicemen, and, mm-hmm. um, or you're just going to end up in, in a bad life unless you're lucky. I was lucky that I held down a job for, for a long time and, and a lot of excessive drinking, and, and I managed to cope. But a lot of lads and lasses, they, they don't have, whether it be that look or that common sense, but it's a very big transition. And from one place to another, when you've been involved, especially I was another reason I was quite lucky was I never did Iraq or Afghanistan. So the level of pressure and contact situations that those boys and girls were having there to come out and then go back and come back and come back and pressurize, depressurize pressure. It's yeah. it, it's got to have been horrific. And then to come out, I've just had a friend um, a couple of weeks ago diagnosed with um I can't remember the name of it now. I think it's Karpov syndrome. He's literally lost his memory because of um, severe drinking. And he's, really? he's going at 52, same age as me. I worked with my mate. He's going into a care home. It's like, because <laughs> he can't cope and live on his own. It's sad. It's horrible. And he was a really good lad. And me and him used to go to the med on holidays, Corfu in the summers, bright, buzzing lad. 
and he turned into this shell, this husk of a person, because there was nothing there. And a lot of lads will go into private security because they feel safe in that similar sort of environment. And what they're doing then is they're, they're either going like, well, I got offered work going and working against Somalia pirates. And that's not healthy again. So you're going into work, which luckily my work's gave me quite a lot of desk job, but that gives you time to think as well. So and when you're doing that and your aggression, your anxiety is coming out, um, if there'd have been a bit of therapy or a little bit of something or signposting when you left, I think yeah. things would be a lot better. Um, I can't speak to what it's like now because this might cause uproar with some people that's in the army or some majors or generals that will say, well, it's there now. Well, if it is, that's good. But there was nothing there. And you just look at lads that used to be in the Falklands and other places that um, they're shattered now. Um, yeah. Oh, the, the amount of stuff that will be going on in their heads, it's, it's craziness. So obviously yeah. you mentioned that you, you mentioned briefly you woke up in a cell. Yeah. Obviously for your binge drinking. So, what happened then for moving forward? Um, well, after I'd woke up in the cell, uh, I got charged with drink drive and I got given a court date. And that was literally due to some guy was on a tram coming out of Manchester telling me, hey, give us Wonderwall, because I had like a Gallagher haircut and I had a scarf on and a Parker and mm -hmm. uh, brand new Adidas and, and, and all that. So it, I was looking like that and, and I'm like, no, no. So it, it started with a, a bit of a fracas off the tram i got off early and i went into an escape and evasion i went to a camera sat in mcdonald's walked away walked miles out of the way where my car was got in my car because i was just to get a tax a 10 quid taxi and then wrapped it around an a and e lamppost for that ironically of all things that was a sign yes. um but yeah i woke up in the nick i came home and i cried my heart out for for days um my parents were away at the time and i told them um and i would i'd realized then that when i was looking in the mirror i was just this shivering wreck i was a mess first thing i did was give up the booze um i obviously because of what had happened i'd had this really bad relationship that that was the cause of it at that point i hadn't been diagnosed uh, i went to the doctors rolled up in a ball crying shivering saying my head's not right i just want to kill myself um uh, i've been feeling like this for a long time but something's happened in my life and it's just opened this gate up um so they they first put me on medication, so I got uh, prescribed citalopram. Um, I got told to self-refer um, to Healthy Minds, which I did. I then got an appointment, which takes its time, another month. Um, and then I got onto a course of cognitive behaviour therapy, and I got fast-tracked, because, and which was a good thing because I'm an ex-serviceman. And they now register, I think, with medical centres as ex-servicemen, so they know that there could be a trigger if you've been right. in, trouble with a, in trouble with the police or you need further uh, medical attention. So that happens, I know now, with the NHS, because I've worked a few, with a few people that if you register as an ex-serviceman and it comes up with something, you'll be like, ah, there's a bigger underlying issue, we need to fast track. So the first thing I was told was, and I'm lucky, I live near Saddleworth Moor, and, and the moors over towards the Peak District was get out walking, clear your head, your head is just this mangled up mess. Mm -hmm. uh, so I went out walking, I put my headphones in, put Radio 6 on, listened all day, listened to good music, and I was trundling out. And in typical ex-military style, I put a backpack on and I was going 15, 20 miles. Uh, I still kept myself in fairly fairly good nick as a late 40-year-old, so doing miles wasn't a problem. And I found it was amazing that within two or three weeks after getting all this anger out of my head, and it was anger with myself and what has happened over the years, and when sobriety kicked in and the medication kicked in, I got this level opening of the mind. It was weird, and I was sat up at Indian's head which is a set of rock formation up near me. Uh, and I said, right, your life's going to change, mate. Don't know what it is, but 
you're coming out of this a different way. And as I walked off, and I can't remember what song it was. It was it wasn't a not well known one. It was some guy was doing something bordering on spoken word rap to a, to a dance track, and and I went and I started putting my own words to it of my pain and just going like that. And I came home and then I start. Then the next few walks, I started recording all my thoughts down in my phone on a voice recorder, coming down and writing them down because on Google it said write your thoughts down. It's a good way of recovery. And I found that because I'm out listening to music, there was a very lyrical, unintentionally rhyming form to it. And so I wrote them all down on scrap bits of paper. And I carry a bit of book now like this, which has just got bits of notes down with red pen. And I write, <laughs> and I write you can sit there, verse, and it's crossed out. And, and that's my <laughs> editing process. But I literally just, um, just started writing it all down. And then I, I got a decent book and started writing it down neatly and looking at it. And that was kind of like my therapy. I was analysing a third person going, mate, your head's in a bad place. Do this, do that. And, and that's kind of how it started four years, just well, just under four years now. Uh, and I showed some of my stuff to, I've got a lot of friends that were like, like we've got mutual friends, that that's how we got to know each other. And um, I, I used to hang around with a lot of musicians and they were like, your lyrics are quite good, mate. Have you ever thought of doing something with them? I'm, well, I'm not a musician. I, I pick up a guitar once every four years, get three or four chords out, put it down because I'm bored. Yeah. And they, went, they went, have you thought about doing spoken word nights? And, and, and a couple of people and my parents were like, well, you used to be an artist, so why don't you start painting? I went, well, I've actually started writing poetry. And they were like, well, <laughs> you've, never, you've, never, you've never read poetry in your life. You've never done this. You've never done that. And I'm like, I know, but it's something that's just happened. And I showed it to my friends and then I started going out to spoken word nights, open mic nights. And people went, you've got a bit of a knack at this, haven't you? And I'm like, I don't know. I've still got imposter syndrome. So I'm like, that's rubbish really, isn't it? And they're yeah. like, and they're like, no, and I still get it now when people give me a compliment. I'm like, I feel uncomfortable. But they're like, no, this is good. You, 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 no point being a bedroom poet, mate. Get out and get and start performing it. So I did. And then. Three months later, I, I took my book to a festival and I said, can I go on that stage and introduce these bands? And they were like, yeah, right, madly. And, and as soon as I got that, there was photographs, there was press, a couple of promoters, and they went, will you come and introduce these bands? So I got into the music side of it and then then, then it took on and then I started featuring at Spoken Word Nights and it, it ballooned. Before right. COVID, I had six, eight months before COVID where it just went, the trajectory was just mental. It just, I was, I'd done a gig with like, Tim Burgess from the Charlottes. I'd done a gig with Peter Rook. I'd done a gig um, just supporting bands at festival days that they're playing or or gigs that they were at. And it's like pinching myself. And then COVID kicked in. So then it all put a back seat. I was doing Zoom stuff, but I kept it going because it, it is literally now my medicine. Um, mm -hmm. I could I do talks with addiction services and, and and other mental health groups. And I say, I couldn't stop this now because this is my anchor. This is what gets my thoughts out of any form of badness. I don't write too much now about mental health worries, but they do come in now and then, so I do keep writing them down. But it's everything mm -hmm. else that I'm frustrated with in the world that stops my anxiety coming back. I, I still write and I continue to write every day because if I don't, that's my new addiction. I'm, I'm fear that I'll slip back into the old me and, um, and, and turn it and, and just go to the pub instead of sitting in and puzzling like a jigsaw, puzzling verse. Yeah, so... The spoken word stuff, obviously, you did. You hadn't had any kind of previous for doing spoken word, but when you started doing the spoken word nights, 
did you come across any any day like obviously I've had Matt Abbott on the the podcast. Yeah. The Scant and Demoralised and he he done the same sort of thing where he was spoken word over music. Kinda of, yeah. kinda of similar to maybe what we'll touch on later with the dart. Um so is there people that have you've came across and became friendly with uh, through the spoken word? Yeah, there's there's a lot of suffering people in the spoken word arena. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people that have got their own mental health journeys and we joke on the side that we're a troubled group of performers. And I think that goes back years um, that people writing their thoughts down and, and stuff. So I, th- I think that it is a troubled group, um, this this bandwagon of sufferers that, that write about the thoughts that have the bravery, to, in my eyes, to stand up on a stage with a microphone, no music, and talk a story yeah. in poetic form. It so, must be like standing on a stage naked kind of thing. It, it's just you and a microphone. You, you are literally stripped back. I've had some people say, well, have you not put music to it? I'm like, just listen to the words, mate. Listen to my contemporaries. Listen to what they've got to say. Um, your brain will be that immersed in words. I sound like I know what I'm talking about now. Or I sound like this passionate sort of critic. But listen to what they've all got to say. And you'll forget that you don't even need the music. It's like... Listen to someone like Sleaford Mods and you get his words that are that aggressive and straight in there. If you listen to words, you forget about all the electronic stuff behind it. It's good, but you forget about it. Um, Jim Morrison of The Doors, you could listen to him ramble on without there being any keyboards or any guitar and simple drums because his words are that poignant. And, And he was a poet before he started too. So I think it's very a naked form of art. Um, that you are putting yourself in a position to be judged without anybody else backing you. and um, But it's good for that because once you get yourself up there with your book or your phone or like me, if you recite them and learn them and, and go up there and just with a microphone, it's very liberating. It's mm-hmm. very opening and I love it. And then like I think what Matt does, because he I think he runs a night nymphs and thugs around West yeah. Yorkshire that I have... Um, I have emailed and spoke to because I'm starting out because I've done a lot in Manchester. I'm, I'm doing a few gigs in West Yorkshire and, and I've done a certainly a lot in Liverpool and, and Sheffield, Nottingham. So I am branching out a fair bit now and mm-hmm. the, the, the word's spreading, um, for want of a better phrase. Um, but yeah, like like probably Matt and like a, a few others, um, I took this natural progression, which like you said, we talked about later the dirt, to put my stuff to music, whether it be I collaborate with a few musicians, instrumentalists, whether it be trance, whether it be, I've done dub reggae, I've done um, punk tracks, um, and I will put my words, whatever suits that I've got, and they say, we like your words, would you put some words to some of my instrumental music? Yeah, I'll do it. And I'm, I'm very fortunate that my wife is a brilliant musician. She's she's exceptional. She's um, She got referred to as Robert Fripp the other night from King Crimson, the way she, her style yeah. that, she, that she's very, she's got two loop station pedal, pe- loop station, two effects pedal boards. She's a, she's, she's very avant-garde in her sounds. She's very different, but she plays also um, contemporary music, chords and stuff. And she'll put, she'll play rhythm, bass and lead guitar while I do the spoken word through loop pedals and effects pedals. And she's very clever at what she does. So the next natural possession was for me to collaborate with her and then we formed the band and we call ourselves mm. the dirt 
So I, I like doing it to music. My stuff has got very much a, a four bar beat. It's got a cadence to it already because I, <laughs> I write a lot of my stuff when I'm out walking or thinking when I'm running. So there, it, it fits well with music. Um, yeah. So so it, it, it was kind of a natural progression that, but I, I, I would never give up the solo stuff, like doing some gigs this weekend, the diverse places I get asked to perform is is crazy. And Yeah, I've seen I, that. You were playing the local football club and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, it's like without name dropping, I got asked yesterday, Clint Boone, for the carpets. I went to did his in the Mrs. Tea Party yesterday afternoon. But the day before, I was gigging with my local non-league football club away with Prescott Cables over in Merseyside. So I was doing half-time entertainment. And... Um, with a, with a group of lads that and lassies that were watching the game that kind of understood my words, especially my political um, tilted verse and mm-hmm. social and social commentary, which has a humour that a working class lad and lass can relate to. So it, it goes down well in, in lots of different. It's multifaceted. Let's say it, it, a lot of people can get the the different angles at what I'm trying to commentate on. Do you think it comes across better as a obviously you're based like in the north? And that's like all the all the kind of poets that I've heard, obviously yourself, Matt Abbott, even back to John Cooper Clark. Yeah. They're all kind of northern. Um, so do you think that kind of accent, that voice lends itself to the poetry? Yeah, I think it probably does. I think the you 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 can go you can count people um like JB Barrington and Mike Gary of other Mancunian or Solfordian lads that have done it but um you've only got to look at and i'm going to forget her name in a minute and i need to get it there's, there's um jules from west yorkshire she worked with new model army for years uh she lives out in in i think in the moors up by bradford keithley way so um i think it's not stereotypical but it, it's definitely got a very strong um, oi, oi, you wonderful people out there. You're listening to the Time for Heroes podcast in association with the Songbird HQ. Bosh, get all over it. Yeah, like I, like I said, the, Mike Gary, JB Barrington, that there's lots of Northern across this M62 corridor all the way from Liverpool to Hull. Um, at Jim Igo over in, and there's a four Johns in Hull and some great um, Liverpool lads. Uh, and I think it, it's... It, it's a voice you get and and a, a protest of feeling and and it's welcomed a lot in the north, especially Manchester. There's so many great spoken word nights, but I don't think it's restricted to that because when when um, I've, I've just been thinking, you've only got to look at bands like Arab Strap Up from where you are, mm-hmm. um, uh, Malcolm Middleton and and, and the bands like that. They they, they narrate stories. Um, one of my favourite tracks is an Arab Strap one I think it's called A Big Weekend or something yeah first and, big weekend first big weekend it's like when someone asks me name 10 tracks it's always in there because that is just that's like a story and it's no different to Weekender by uh, Flowered Up when they did that down in um, a, a Liverpool band but Mike Skinner from Birmingham and you've got other bands down uh, I could I could reel them off uh, Newcastle's got a great storytelling um Mm-hmm. Uh, vibe. They've got a great folk scene up in the Northumbria, Northumberland area. So I, th- I think it's everywhere. But people, I think because the voice, there's less of it, like Scottish, Welsh, the, the, the choir stuff is storytelling, London. I think the accent, just whether it be Yorkshire or Liverpool or Mancunian or Lancastrian, it's it's it, it's it's got that. It's probably got that um, tone which suits 
a storytelling in, yeah. in spoken word form. But it's definitely, I think it's, it's certainly national. It's certainly Welsh, Scottish, Irish. You, you, th- th- there's some great poets, Irish poets out there. Uh, and, and I think storytelling is, is, a, is, is, is folk, isn't it? It's, it? It goes back hundreds, probably thousands of years of telling stories and passing it on to next generations before we had books and scriptures. And, and we're great at it at the, in the British Isles. We, we're great at storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, so obviously, what what came first then? The the because you you brought out a book as well. So what came first, the the Leon stuff or the book? Did the book come off the back of the, the Leon stuff? Yeah, uh, the first book, talking myself out of trouble, literally came. It was an idea I had going into lockdown. Um, I wasn't performing. Um, I wasn't getting out and talking as much. Um, and it was something I did to keep myself properly sane as well. I needed something to stop me from going off the rails and start having manifestation thoughts again. So I created the book and I worked with a lad who's a recovering alcoholic. And I'd said like, right, let's do a book. I'll put all the work. I've got all the work ahead and we'll create a book together, which is of about 30 different verse. And you will do some company artwork because there's a lot of poetry books and pamphlets out there. It's literally page to page text. So I wanted mm-hmm. to do something different and create something new. So I got, um, I did it glossy. I did it to a really high standard, good paper. I got my friend at Fluid Pre-Press who lives down the road, Steve Riley. He did all the embedding of the phone and we did it like really good. And it was something to work with online and communicate with people and have a project going through lockdown. So when we came out the other side, I was doing the pre-sales and I put the book out as soon as everyone could get out and I did a few gigs around it. So then I had... Um, a context of something to, to perform when I came out of lockdown, I said, right, and I've got a book. Um, and it's good because um, it, it's something tangible that people can read. And, and I tried to do it so it was multi-formatted so that um, not everyone likes reading, but it's a coffee table thing or, a, or if you want to send your to sleep, it's a bedtime thing. But it's yeah. short. It, it's like one and a half. You can read a poem in one and a half minutes and a bit of illustration. And it's very light, light reading, although it's dark content so i did that and i got that i got the bug of of that puzzle solving again of, of creating a book together so i did my second one which last year now don't believe the hype and i thought in the current p- political climate of what's going on i need to tell the world what was happening through my eyes globally and nationally of mm-hmm. what, I, what i see as lying corrupt people running a country which shouldn't happen and, and now that the homelessness are on the street so it kind of threaded in from the first one but from being introspective of my thoughts, it was me now looking out as someone who felt better with a voice that I should tell the world how I see it through my eyes and the problems that still occur, food banks, homelessness, um, addiction services and all this, but also the global warming and other things that I'm passionate about and, and the political landscape. And I just thought, I need to get this out of my chest. So I wrote, put that into a book called Don't Believe the Hype. Um uh-huh. An ode to Public Enemy, because although I'm into alternative and punk, I, I used to love old hip-hop, and, and it was it was a Public Enemy, Don't Believe the Hype is a sequel. So it was my second book, so... But yeah, Don't Believe the Hype, Don't Believe what comes out of that big black box in the corner of your living room, because a lot of it is spin and lies. So, um, so yeah, I did that, and I worked with a, a gig photographer, Helen Milliton, on that. Um, she was an aspiring gig photographer, working her way up to bigger gigs. Um, and we did a book and she she photographed a lot of deprivation and different landscape and provocative pictures around Manchester in the north. And we put that together as a second one. So, right. Good. So obviously the Leon stuff then. Yeah. Where did the, 
I've got some questions regarding the name. Yeah. Where did the name come from, firstly? The first time it was used, I think, was in 1992. It was a film, a British film, um, about a Jewish guy that inherits a pig farm. Um, a dark comedy. Um, so it was used in 92. The first time I proper heard it used outside the context was in 94. Um, in the army, because there was a very big IRA threat, you would have a pseudonym because you wouldn't go out into garrison towns or when you're in Ireland and say, my name's Jack Horner and I'm a serviceman because there was a good chance he'd have a bomb put under your car when you came back <laughs> after, after a day's shopping or a, if, you, if whoever was the designated driver because the, the, the other lads had been blabbing off their identity. So you, you had a different name or you had a different profession and we all had one um, of why we were in Northern Ireland or why we're in Germany uh, and other places. My friend once, when we were out having a drink, was chatting to a lass and he told her his name was Leon and that he was a pig farmer. Um, it was the days of old shoegaze and grunge. He was dressed in an old woolen jumper, ripped jeans, a pair of Dr. Martins, a little woolly skull cap. And he looked the part, to be honest. Um, and I remember my head turning round and going, that's clever, that's great, that because it's an old film as well. Um, mm. And I remember it's something I remembered. And when someone asked me for a name on a poster, I was sat having a coffee in a, in a little square in Manchester with a promoter. And he said, right, I'm putting you on with a, some really good bands. Are, you, are we putting you on as Jack Horner, John? And have you created a stage name? I went, stage name? No. And I said, I'll just go on and say, oh, my name's Jack Horner and here's a bit of poetry. He said, well, I'm going to put you on at a gig and a poster. It'll look good if you have a name. And I just went straight away, Leon the Pig Farmer. And he went, what? And the same questions I'm having with you goes, why? I went, you asked me for a name and I've given you one. And it's, he went, it's punch, I'll give you that. It's different. I went, well, there's a Tiller the Stockbroker who's a musician and a poet out there. Um, there's a few other people that have something the in in musical context. So I'm gonna be lay on the I'm gonna be lay on the pig farmer. Um and it just instinctively came out. But looking back, and I say this as well, it probably does sum up me in a way that being left-wing socialist or having very liberal views in the army would be not too dissimilar to a Jewish guy owning a pig farm. It's right. like, you're kind of out of place a lot. It's, uh, but yeah. the context of the film is that he was, he was swapped wrongly at birth and he was brought up in an affluent Jewish London family when really his blood parents were pig farmers in Yorkshire. So he was brought up under pretense in the wrong environment. Very much so as someone who was like me, a working class lad who very much had left-wing socialist and, and, and different liberal views to be in the military. It's, it's like, it doesn't, mm -hmm. like, we, we, we alluded to it before, it doesn't quite fit. Um, someone that doesn't believe in, like, um, invading another country or yeah. something, just defending yourself. It's like, so I, I guess that instinctively it came out because I'd, I'd analysed the film and thought previously, this is quite like me. Um, I've worked in environments that my personal and other views, social views, don't fit in with my employment. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, it's 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 a tip of the hat to that as well, very subtly, but yeah. uh, it's stuck, and and I get it, it as a really catchy name, and that's how obviously, as I said, my pal Stevie kind of introduced me to you, but I yeah. think with the name, I think I was already aware of you in some sort of format. The other yeah, question, it... the other question I was going to ask about the name is obviously I I don't I've listened to you on some other kind of interviews and stuff like that, but I've never heard them to ask 
what sort of connotations the name brings. Like because see, whenever I hear the name we on the pig farm, whenever we talk about it, I get the the smell and my nose. Yeah, a farm. Yeah, it's it's like a really kind of it's like a funny smell. Like is as, as if I'm on a farm, which obviously really? I'm, I'm sitting in my living room and but it smells like a pig farm. Mad. It's it it provokes thought straight away. Yeah. That if I was Jack on it'd be like, well, that's your name. Yeah, um, and and don't get me wrong, Jack was my nickname given to me in the army, so it's not my birth first name, which which I never used. My parents, my cousins, my aunties, everyone calls me Jack, so it never gets used unless I have to produce a driving license or a passport or, or talk to my bank manager, which don't happen in these days anyway. Um, so um, it provokes thought straight away, and it's me- it's memorable. So uh, it was unintentional at the time because I didn't think there was going to be a career in this. It was a case of just create for a poster. And it turns out it has turned into something. So um, when I go on stage, it is literally the books are in my own name, Jack Horner. The moment I go on a mic, I put on this persona of Leon the Pig Farmer. And, and it provokes thought. And if that's great, that already it's asking people to ask questions and accept nothing, which is my motto, then it's it's doing the job is the name, regardless of when I start speaking. So we're already on the right journey. And... It's it's memorable, and yeah. I think that's good. And it, 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 I, I just breathe it to LPF, and if I sign anything, but people in the streets now, when I'm at gigs, they all just I get called Leon now. So it's like I've got that many different pseudonyms that I, I answer to it. Um, <laughs> it's, so yeah, uh, it, it's stuck and it'll it'll stay. Yeah, as long I, as, I as long as I love it. Then. Yeah, as long as people want Leon to step on a stage, um, then. Leon will stay um, and, and just keep on doing it. I'll keep writing books under the name Jack Horner. So, yeah. Obviously, as, as we spoke about, I mean, you've only been doing that four years. So mm. how did, you, you spoke about it briefly, actually, when you were saying about it in the mirrors and how you kind of came to put your thoughts down. How does the writing process, how do you flesh that out? Uh, it starts with if I'm out and about, um, if I'm walking or it'll start on a voice recorder or if I'm on a bus, train, tram um, or just sat about, it will literally go into my phone diary. Um, my diary has each event can have, I can write about five verse. So if I get a, a flow of thought, a flow of thought, I literally just type it all into my phone and save it for the next day. And then what I do is once it's come out of my phone, it'll go onto like I showed you a pad like this. I literally mm-hmm. just fill this. This gets filled up with words and scribbles and and I juggle the words around and that's my jigsaw. That's my therapy of playing on a morning with a, with a brew, um, of juggling the verse so it sounds right, so it tells the story. And I always work off the format of a beginning, middle and end. So in eight verse or ten verse of four-line stanzas, which I, is very simple of how I write, so it's memorable to learn as well as, as lyrics, it's... It flows as a story. So I'm giving you an introduction. I'm telling you the context and I'll give you a conclusion. So it, it fits usually within six te- to 10 verse, depending on how big the, inve- the event was. And that's how I write it in that. And eventually I haven't got my props here. It's like, this is how it finished. It's like it's like something off the, the, the baking programs. And then it goes into this book, which has loads of gig stickers on it. And it literally goes in neat on blank paper. That's blank paper, but it goes in neat like that then. Um, and that's a, that's a poem. Um right. And it's all neat and it'll stay in there. And then when 
depending on the context, I write in the top corner the dirt if I think it's going to be good dirt lyrics, or I write LPF three because that's going to be my next book. So the, the, the books that I've got are all numbered in the bottom, like Factory Records, Fact One, Fact Two. I keep yeah. LPF one, LPF two, and eventually we'll get a lovely little catalogue of LPFs one to whatever. Um, so that was and- a question I was <clears throat> I was going to lead into. Do you when you're writing it, then you don't you don't know what it's going to be at the time. You don't know whether it's going to be dark or whether it's going to be Leon or for the book. No, no, it's it's and and, and when I've read it back uh, and I've had a little look at it, I'll go that'll make great dirt lyrics if Satchiko put some really good distorted angry guitars and that could go very well with like something that's very like we've got Power Junkie and I said to Satchiko I want something that's very much like Reverence I want something that's very much like Jesus and Mary Chain and she went downstairs for an afternoon and muddled around with her pedals and came out with this track that very much sounded like um, Reverence by Mary Chain and I was like that's Power Junkie. So Power Junkie was then became dirt lyrics and it was very angry, good, loopy, distorted guitars. And so that went into dirt lyrics and some of it might be for a book because it's either long or it tells a different story and it's not got, it's got a lovely flow, but it's not got the punch of a performance poetry piece. So I I write the top corner LPF3 or book um, and other ones if it's right, like I learned in one last week, so I'm consolidating in my head this week, um, a 10-verse poem around a crossroads in Manchester where there's deprivation, where there's shutter blinds, where there's knocking shops, where there's bookies, where there's drunken pubs, where there's people smokers' alleys. And I've wrote a story about this. And it's not detrimental about that area because I never slag off anything like that. It's about making people aware that these places exist, these people are happening, and they're being knocked down at society. And it's literally a story about where's levelling up? Where Where is this levelling up that the, the government are saying? Because yeah. from what I see, when I drive into Manchester through gigs or I walk through the nearby estate, nothing has changed. So it's it's kind of a, when I introduce it, it'll be like, nothing's changed, mate. This is Manchester. This is a crossroads in Manchester and it is still the same as what it was 20 years ago. So your levelling up isn't working. So there's always a message in it, really, I think. Yeah. Um, so that's the bit. There'll be performance pieces, story of people at festivals on acids, stories of toilet walls in black pen or whatever. I was listening to that. I was listening to that just last night. That's a Were you? Yeah. yeah, the pay hat. So there's stories. There's stories on a tram, stories on a bus, stories of Manchester streets, stories of whatever. They are perfect pieces to do a spoken word. So... Uh, some mental health pieces are spoken word. Some political pieces are spoken word. If I can get a succinct message across in one and a half minutes, which is the usual length of a piece that I do when I rehearse and recite it, put that back to back with another piece, it becomes three minutes. It's very much like a lyrical content of a song. So they, 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 it's, it becomes later on. It could be six months to a year, and it might sit in that book, and there's stuff in there that has never seen the light of day. It's never seen a book. It's never seen a live stage. It's never seen a lyrics. And I will go through it when Satchiko creates, she might create a bit of music and say, I've got, I've created this. I'll go, oh, I might have the words for that. I wrote something about six months, a year ago, and it's never <laughs> seen a day, a light of day. And then I'll juggle it around again and it'll become lyrics. So nothing's wasted. Everything will get used at some point, whether it be in a book in five years' time or it'll be a book, the next book, um, or it'll go onto a stage. So That's amazing. That's brilliant. Delivery style, obviously. How did your delivery style, how how has that kind of evolved in the, the four years? And do you, obviously you mentioned public enemy. Do you yeah. kind of 
do you use that sort of flow that a rapper would use? Is yeah. I've never looked at anybody in particular and gone, I am going to be like them because I don't think that would work because literally your performance is your personality. I've seen some of the most powerful deliveries done by the most petite, small woman who will tell you about something very personal, whether it be family abuse, whether it be going through the change or menstrual problems and it's the most powerful, emotional thing you've ever seen from someone small. And they will stand there and read it and tell you their story. That is their personality and their vulnerability coming out. And I think that is the way they deliver. I could never do that. Uh, one, as we've seen now, you ask me an open question. I will rattle on. I'm a prattler. I will talk forever. I love it. I grew up in a pub. My parents were publicans. I'm so used to just nattering on. So... I, I, and the music that I listened to, the late 70s, very energetic front men and women, very, uh, the, the hip hop. My delivery is my personality and it's my passion, my aggression, my frustration and my anger and my anxiety because that is still in me. I still suffer with anxiety. That is that coming out. When I get on stage, I am so nervous that I have this ball of ache here and it's just now how I deliver that up through here into a performance. So... I, I look at how these people stomp, like especially Public Enemy, I stomp around a stage and go into corners and like they did or like Run DMC yeah. did. Uh, and I am very much, I have got that about me. Um, but I've also got the aggression of charging forward like like a, like a front person in a band. or And and I guess that, that that is my delivery. That's my style. That's my personality coming out. I'm always on my toes. People used to say I'm like Tigger. I'm always bouncing when I'm in a booze or something. Although I don't have alcohol as much in my body anymore, I still have the odd pint now and then. I still bounce around on my toes. I'm this social back person who bounces around. And that's probably why I bounced into this Moppet because we, we were in the same environment. So we bounced around and we're similar sort of people. And and that's it. My personality just comes out and uh, nerves as well. Keeps me moving. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I just I just take on my own, the own personality of just getting out and throwing the words yeah. out. Yeah. So... Cool. so Obviously, the doubt we've, we've kind of touched on it briefly, but yeah. let, let the listeners know what the doubt is and who the doubt is. Right. The dirt is uh, a marital duo of distortion, feedback, noise, reverb, pedal effects in a guitar. It's me and my wife, Sachiko Wakizaka. Um, she's from Japan. She moved over here. I met her walking out of the Shed 7 gig in Manchester in Castlefield. Um, we bumped into each other. We went for a pint. And then she was studying English in in Wales at the time. And then she moved to Manchester. We started dating. And then I'd been going to Japan and we'd been back and forth for a few years. I went to see her back. She was in a band called Single Man in Japan. She moved over here. She kept slowly bringing her pedals and the guitar back. And <laughs> she she unconventionally plays a, a, a really lovely Rickenbacker through um, two pedal effects boards with a loop station and a switch pedal board. And she's she's honed her craft to something that I've never seen before. I think the closest I've seen contemporary to people of our age would be Andy Bell of Ride, of, of, who, of who has the same noise distortion, who has the same sort of sound that can get out of the guitar. So uh, we're both Ride fans. We've seen Ride loads. Um, and I guess that's the closest of the modern ones, but she loves people bands. She's very much prog. She loves 
Emerson Lake, she's the same age as me. She's 52, 52 so she loves, but she loves King Crimson, Emerson Lake and Palmer. She loves Hawkwind. She's very much into the old rock and prog. And then I bring my punk come touch of hip hop. But yeah, but more, the, the, more the new wave punk, indie new wave angle to it. So we fuse uh-huh. it together. Um, she plays loop distorted guitars. I do very simple like Mary Chain used to do in the 80s with a but without a with without using toms i use a sample drum pad so it's very simple drumming very much like primal scream and and, and very much like um uh like i said mary chain used to use and we we create and we rip some sound out and i put spoken lyrics on top of it and we both put both have oscillator effects pedals that you'd get used in psychedelic modern psych bands and we make a unique sound and it's been picked up beautifully and gladly by a lot of the like music press louder than war saying it's suicide meets spiritualized or a dark fall division. The latest one we've had as well is Sleaford mods meets Spaceman three, which is a mad sound clash in itself. <laughs> I think we get the Sleaford mods thing because I'm on stage giving it the aggression and shouting down a mic. Um, the sound is totally different, uh, but we are the dirt. Um, we, we practice in the house. We've got a old stone cottage, Downstairs, the cellar is where we make a lot of racket and noise through big uh-huh. fender amp, through big fender amps and martial amps and stuff. And um, and then we, we we decided after lockdown, we put two EPs out of stuff that we'd messed around with, like demos. Put that on Bandcamp. People started getting behind it, and then promoters in Manchester asked us if we'd come and do gigs, uh, and we did. And we've we've got our vinyl landing on the fourteenth of April through Golden Believers Records, and we've got three or four good promoters around Manchester that really like us. And further afield, we're gigging Rough Trade Nottingham next month. We're gigging at the Golden Lion in Todmorden, an iconic venue um, soon. We've just been in Liverpool. Uh, before then, we'd supported some really great bands, a great band that I love from up, up, up your way called Helicon, who were a brilliant band signed to a big Fuzz Club label. Uh-huh. Um, and it's going it's going really well. We, we don't gig, we don't over-gig. Uh, my wife is post-cancer care. And she gets very lethargic quite easy. So the gig inside yeah. of it can take its toll. So one, two gigs a month, we we, we, we carry on going. And and we, we, we're going around the UK this summer. We've got gigs in Brighton. We're going to Dublin Castle in Camden. Um, and oh, and yeah. other, place, other places, uh, we, we, we're doing Nottingham, like I said, and, and Sheffield. And I think we've got a gig up in Leeds and up in West Yorkshire. Uh, and it's going well. And, and we practice and we rehearse and we bring out new songs and... Uh, and it's a really good project. It's something totally different for me because um, I've never performed musically and having a musician in the family has taught me so much about the complexities and, and, and how we rehearse and practice. So um, I, I, I love that. So, yeah, the dirt. And um, how that's it for a married life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's good. We, we don't, we're not an arguing couple. We don't. Um, it's like uh, uh, I'm the emotional outgoing one. Sachiko's very reserved because she's Japanese, and it's like um, it's when we go into the rehearsal studios, there's, there's no bickering. It's like right. you, you get your frustrations, like you're doing any kind of work, but it doesn't overspill upstairs into the kitchen or the living room. I mean, you can't you, you can't have a, a problem with a song and go into a kitchen where there's glass and knives, can you? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I tell people. People go, "What?" I said, but we don't, we, we, we're not like that. So it's like, but whatever happens in the music and, and it, it flows naturally. We we just, the music and the words just seem to yeah. get cohesive. There's, it's symbiotic. It's it's brilliant and it works together. 
and it, it works with a level of ease that um, um, it's so natural that um, it's brilliant. And, and I love it live. It adds a totally different level to what Leon does. It's 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 brilliant. Is there any plans to come up to Scotland at any point with the duck? Well, yeah, I, I've got a good friend who lives who lives up near Glasgow who's friends with this a couple of bands up there that I know. I would love to come up if um if if a, if this if this goes out to a really good promoter that that likes sort of like alternative psychedelic um experimental stuff, give me a shout. I'd I'd love to come up to Glasgow. I was speaking to a promoter next week on the podcast, um, so I'll I'll pass it on to him. See what he thinks. Yeah, I've got a good friend Stevie Graham who's who's up your way. And he 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 road manages bands and like I said, there's a band Helicon up in up in Glasgow who, who are absolutely brilliant and a couple of other bands. I think Kundalini Genie are up that way. Right. Um, uh, but some really good psych and and and, so, and and some good alternative bands up there. I'm influenced by a lot of stuff. I I grew up on Creation Records, so anything that came out of Creation in the eighties, mm-hmm. it's like it's that kind of sound. I I just love it. I'm a massive Mary Chain fan. Um, and that, and I think that comes out as well as in in our in our in our music um, because I I give like Sachiko what the words are like and I'll have a tune in my head. I just can't take it from there into music form because I ain't, I ain't good at that. The um, other thing I wanted to ask you about the dark, obviously looking at the obviously it says the album comes out the start of April, don't you? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. on order. We've got a hundred release vinyl coming, and we've sold a bucket load of those we put a pre-sale out with band extras we brought a load of stickers and everything back from japan so we sold our band ex- a band extra vinyl out in a day and we sold the cds with band extras out within i think it was a week or two a week or so of a bulk of them and now we've got a pre-sale of vinyl and cds on sale um they're they're golden believers who were the the, 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 the like diy label that we're working with in manchester uh, but yeah, we launch it. it. It comes out. Everyone will get their copy on the 14th of April. It's pre-ordered, but you can order them still. And uh, we go live at the Pay Hat. We've got four great bands on with us. Um, we're the clo- we're in Manchester, but we're the closest to Manchester. We've got a band from Warriton, Sheffield, and Leeds all coming and joining us. And they've all really good alternative, similar good sounds. And we're going to raise the roof on the place. So, what about the album artwork? Who's who's done the artwork? Because Oh, the artwork is mental. It's uh, a girl called um, Aisha Aish. Um, She's in Manchester. She's actually the partner of a local sound engineer that I know at one of the local gig venues. I bumped into her. We started nattering. Uh, She's an artist. She showed me some of her work, and I just gave her the narrative of um, Lady Godiva in a style of Jean-Michel Basquai, um, who's a great New York artist from the... 70s and 80s um and i gave her those those two ideas really and she took it away and created this lovely piece of, of a painting and and she said i said come and watch us and see how you think the art form will work out so she came and watched us at a gig which well, she'd seen us a few times now but she, the first time she came and watched us properly and watched the full set and she said i've messed around with the artwork and she put it into those squares that are on the artwork now. Um, and she went, I want it to be like this. I went, brilliant. So um, she's a Manchester artist. I love working with different up-and-coming artists. I've done it in my books. Um, I love collaborations. Um, I think it opens up your mind to how other people work. And and if you, if you can work with other people, it definitely promotes your art as well as their art in your own different spheres. So 
Um, she's very talented. A lot of her work is brilliant. So if anyone does look at the dirt or Leon the pig farm and sees the tags, Aisha Ash, have a look at her stuff because yeah. um, she's very clever. She's very good. Yeah, I, I like it. It's very colourful as well. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's got a dark... I wanted Lady Godiva because the album's called Agitator. And, and in my eyes, in modern history, which which I consider modern history probably in the last thousand years because the world's been going forever, hasn't it? Um, it's like for a woman to walk topless through a town mm. in, in protest to her husband's tax rises. It's like... It shows feminism, it shows agitation, it shows protest, it shows everything which um, we're about promoting. And um, it summed it up, does Lady Godiva. And I think to do it in a style of Jean-Michel Basquai, whose work is very aggressive and it, it is a story that, that, that they've got, I think sums up where we want it to go. And, and, and she brought it out succinctly and, and it's just a, a great picture. It's getting so much good reviews on, wow, the artwork, who did that? And and it's something that no one will have ever seen because it's an unknown artist, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's amazing, man. That's brilliant that you're kind of shining a light on that then as well. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, you touched on your wife's for Japan and you, you go <clears> back <throat> to Japan every, every the start of the year, every year, basically. Yeah, we've got... Um, We've got about, uh, in every nine months, we'll spend at least a month there. So we'll come back to the UK for seven, eight months. I'll do a load of, I'll get Leon gigs set up. Um, I'll do my projects. I'll collaborate on my next book project. Um, and then after seven months, we'll go away and we'll decompress because we work our backsides off while we're here, especially me doing Leon gigs or doing talks, podcasts, or uh, like I do online workshops um, with veterans and other people. And mm-hmm. it, it, it is a busy time. So it's nice to just switch off, pack the gear away and go away for a month and just absolutely empty your head and right. and live a different life. It's escapism. So we go back to Sachiko's homeland and she gets to see her family and all her old friends. And we go there. Last time was seven weeks we did, which was we went middle of December and we didn't come back till the beginning of Feb. So, yeah, we're here till September, then we'll go back. Right. And obviously, so there's a Japan, and then obviously you touched on football at the start. Um, yeah. So you're still keen on football? you still a football fan? Yeah, I love football. I still play five a side. My legs won't last 90 minutes anymore, being in my 52. When Pete, when you say in your 20s, his legs have gone. I never understood it until I got into my 40s. Uh-huh. And, and my brain will still come and I'll receive a ball, and I'll look at turning, and I'll think, I can still get that ball, and my leg's going, nah, mate, nah. Them, them, <laughs> them you've, they, they went 10 years ago, mate. You ain't got them legs anymore. It's like, that's I why can, five. I can still do it. Um, I've, I've been night shift now for two years. So I used to play football with other boys at work. We were all, all worked on the back shift and yeah. then we'd finish and go and play football. Um, so I've been on the night shift for a year and a half and I kind of get playing with them. And I played... Um, Maybe about two months ago, I had a week yeah. off, and I played, and I was brilliant. I was—I mean, I hadn't played in like over a year, yeah. And I strolled through the game, but then I couldn't walk for a week after it. Yeah, it's like my engine room's there. I can still—I can still put the shift in. My le- my legs and lungs are all right. My head's all right. The legs will go. They just ain't got pace anymore. It's like <laughs> I used to rely a lot on my pace being a, being a. I used to play on the right or left wing, so I've got. 
a good right uh, a good right foot and an average left. But it's I'd, I'd, I'd play on the wing, so I, I used to learn pace a lot. Um, that's gone, but they, they, I can still go on. I can still keep going, uh, plodding. Uh, but I love football. I love the game. I love what it's about. What I am, and I'm going to bring it back to politics again, uh, unfortunately, but what I hate, I despise the Premier League. I I despise, I was, was, I still am a fan a bit. I watched the scores. I, I was brought up, I, I was a Leeds fan. I'd, I'd been to Ellen Road, gone knows how many times, or I'd been away. Um, but even in the championship, I lost a lot of interest. Um, I could see where the club was going. I see how much, how many millionaires there are and how many billionaires are running clubs and the vanity projects that go on. And I really can't, I don't, that doesn't sit comfortable with me as a yeah. person. Um, living in a city with two teams, one that's going to sell for multi-billions, yet there's, it's got the biggest homeless problem in in one of the biggest cities in Manchester, in, in, the, in the country. That, 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 disparity doesn't sit well with me at all. And I think over the last few years, especially since my breakdown and I've opened up and I have become quite activist in certain areas, I've certainly fallen out of love with professional football. And But I'd say I still love football. I'll watch match of the day and I, I love the skill. I love the style. I love the, how the, the game has developed. I watch, as mu- I watch probably more of the, the, the women's football now because it's more honest. There's no diving. There's no back chatting to referees. There's, yeah. there's, le- there's less money. It's community spirited. And I go watch non-league football now. Um, I go watch my local club, Mosley. Um, I'll go watch... I went and watched them away and I even performed at Mosley v Prescott. There's an earthy community in non-league football and you stand on a terrace, you can have a pint, you can chat yeah. to your mates. There's, there's no, no bullshit with, with things like that. It's just... Home rough. and away fans passing, the banter's going... Oh mate, oh yeah, blah blah blah. You can give the liner trouble because it's on the line. Your frustrations out with the ref and the liner rather than with the away fans. Away fans will come and drink in the same bar. There's no segregation, and there's no scrapping. There's no um, misogyny. There's no homophobia. No sexism. I've never seen any of that at a non-league football match. So I just don't get in my head how when someone pays 40, 50 quid to go watch millionaires play football, they decide to become a homophobe or a sexist or something like that and want to shout racist abuse. And and I don't get how the, them clubs don't help out community-based Football clubs, even in lower tiers, are just disbanding left, right, and centre because yeah. there's no money. There's no money yet. The money is going top tier, so it is very much like an elitism, which is very much how this country is going in itself. That the the, the separation between the poor and the rich is getting bigger. It's happening in football, and it should never happen because it yeah. it's classed as a working class game, and it doesn't happen. So I've kind of disenfranchised myself with with the club that I was brought up following and going and watching and investing money in. And I found it that football is very much like you're giving your love to something which is in, which is non-tangible because the only tangible thing there is a stadium because the manager, the board, the players, everybody revolves within two or three years. So what is your love of that club? What What is your club apart from the history? And, and this is what I'm starting to write about now. And I've wrote a piece. I woke up yesterday morning after being at this away game and I wrote a piece very northern culture around working class non-league football, but it's 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 national. It, it's it's in every city in the country. And when I was in Ireland, I used to go watch Crusaders against Cliftonville, and it's going back 
or against Linfield. It's going back to like the Northern Ireland League, which I used to love, giving mm-hmm. a banter on the terraces, and um, and I love it more. It's it, the people are human, the people are relatable. Um, so yeah, I still like I'm going around the houses, but I still love football. It's a brilliant game. I'll never stop loving football. Or, or as I see a football and kids in a park, I'll always ask for a one-two because you can't help but want to. You, you, it's it's mad unless you unless you've been brought up. It's like you you'll be walking with it and, and the wife will look at me. She goes, "You want you want to kick that ball, don't you?" I went, yeah. So I go, "Oi, one-two. So you'll get it. And you'll chest it or knock it, knock it back, and you'll walk off with a puff in your chest, going, "Just kicked a football today." And and, and, and if you don't understand that. As a lad growing up who never had a PlayStation or like that, you just kicked a football for eight hours a day. And I love kicking a football. And I'll always love kicking a football um, till till the legs on my heart will stop letting me doing it. But I, 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 I've just lost the love of the professional game. I really have. I just can't bring myself. To, my dad and my brother are still season ticket holders. You're listening to the Time for Heroes podcast in association with the Songbird. Check it out. Martin, you're an absolute legend. What are you? An absolute legend. Obviously, the reason that I asked about football and specifically Japan, um, when you're back in Japan, do you watch any Japanese football? Yeah, I do. Um, I purposely went to a game um, in Tokyo to go and watch Iniesta play for um, Kobe. Um I've never seen live Iniesta play football. And he's, he's one person who, we're still loving the game. I just think keeps the games. He's such a class player that um, we went to a game in Tokyo to watch. He plays for Kobe. Uh, and I went to watch a game. This time we went, because it's a summer season out there. There wasn't a game on this time we went. But um, every time we go back, we, we look to see if there's a football game on. Um, right. And just to watch players like that, it's wherever I go, I'll go watch football. I've like travelled Europe. I've I've been to watch New York City play when um, David Veer and there was a few players. I think Lampard was at New York City when I went um, when they played a game out there. So mm-hmm. if, if I'm there and when we go back, um, we'll try and get the end of the season in August September. So I'll try and get a game in then. Right. So yeah. I mean, so yeah. The reason that I ask that really is I'm a I'm a Celtic fan. Yeah. And obviously. Um, the manager we got, Ange Postacoglu, obviously came for Yokohama Marinos, I think it was. Yeah. And he's filled a team with Japanese players. Yes. Yeah. What a standard of player there. And I was just kind of maybe after a bit of your knowledge, if there's any up-and-coming gems that I should be looking at and signing for a football manager. Oh, or... I've not got that much into it yet. Um, I've not even picked a team that I'm going to follow. Uh, there, there's there's no professional team out near where um, Sachiko's from, but uh, we, we go to Yokohama a lot because uh, right. Sachiko's got friends there and I've got friends there as well now. So that might be a team to start looking at, but I don't know. I'd, I, we went to watch at Tokyo Stadium, but it's um, Tokyo is very much like, I think, the, the Chelsea or the Man City or Newcastle now. They've got rich owners and they invest a lot in the club. Um, so... That's not a club for me. I'd, I'd, I'd want to find a team that's battling around the bottom. That's gritty. We, I mean, we've signed players. As I say, we've signed um, six, six players now. Uh, one of them one of them hasn't worked out, but the other five have kind of taken to it really well, yeah. but not not spent a, a great deal of money on them either. No. I, I, I the value think... of money that we've 
we've got we spent four and a half million on one one of them, but I think the other four have been less than a million pounds and they've kind of they're the backbone of our football team. You've got to look at what the Japanese national team did. They got to a decent place in the last World Cup tournament, didn't they? They play energetic, yeah. eye pressing, fit athletes, and I think that comes a lot in Japanese football. Discipline lives a lot in Japanese culture. And if they're gonna do something, they do it right. They don't yeah. they don't mess about. You've only got to look at the electronic and car industries of, of how they took that from Western culture and they, they took it, made it better. So I know when Lineker went out there for Grampus eight years ago, it was just taking off. And I think like the initial MLS, it didn't quite click. But I think I now... Mean, Lineker was injured as well. I was reading an article about it just the other day. And Lineker was be the time he'd signed for them and then be the time he went, which was about 18 months. He'd yeah. picked up a knee injury and be the time he got there, he was a different player for what they'd signed. Really? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just what I was reading and an article just the other day. It's funny how it comes up like that. It's it's crackers, and I think that now they've got a, a good league and there's there's this players, maybe towards the latter end of the career, going there. But the youth players, everywhere I go, when we go on a train, you'll see lads all dressed, same tracksuits, carrying bags, going to a sports ground. It's, I think they've got it, and, and I think that from, from travelling around, it's very similar to German culture of football, where they're embedded in them, like all in the same tracksuits, all work together, all go to really good stadiums. They, they practice and train mm-hmm. at really good grounds. So I think in a few years, like Celtic have clearly got on there quite early. And I think you, you will see, like, you've only got to look at Spurs with um, Min, of, of a South Korean footballer. I think there's a few Japanese players, like uh, um, Minamino, was a, he didn't quite get in there at Liverpool, but he moved and he's a class player. And yeah. there's, a, there's a couple of us. I see that lad who plays for you, and I can't think what his name is. The shaven-headed lad, striker. Yeah, unbelievable, unbelievable player. Well, well, he played up front for Japan in the World Cup. And he see, our, see the other boy we've got, Kyogo. Yeah, he's a better player, Maeda, and he never went to the World Cup. No. Um, and and I- the thing is, see if they come back. Obviously, like Maeda was in and out the team. Yeah, and he went to the World Cup and he's come back and he's been like standout player for us. But he yeah. came back for the World Cup. You would you would think going to a World Cup, you come back and you'd be tired. Yeah. If anything, it's helped him the rest of the season. Crazy, isn't it? It's and interesting what you say about Germany as well, because in that same article that I read, they, they said that kind of Japan kind of copied the, the German structure. Did it? Yeah. It's weird that because just as me as I was an observer and I do look everywhere I go and I'm always social observing from living in Germany in the nineties, back then the kids would be all in the same kit and they'd be training on good pitches. I used to train and play on a pitch where Saltau is now. Saltau was a very, uh, not Saltau, Paderborn, sorry. And Paderborn are a really good club now. And they've gone up through the, um, through the, 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 the the, the tears of football and they've mm-hmm. advanced their stadium. But back then when I was playing on it and all the lads, the teenagers, they'd all be there in the same gear and we'd turn up as Brits in different stuff and but we'd cobble a team <laughs> together and we took it for granted that football was our game, the Brits and stuff like that. Yet it's, they, they, they take it from such an early age and they get the players so disciplined. And I saw that in, in Japan. It was very much like you'd see in Holland or, or Germany, that the youth system, they bring them together as unity and they train them and they're all smiling and happy and playing together, carrying the kit bags, wearing the same tracksuits, wearing the same 
embroidered stuff. And and it was very much like that. And I think um, the Germans as well with industry are, are very much like Japanese anyway, as as, yeah. business, as business nations. And so, that's how as well, if you look in a lot of the Japanese players when they come to Europe, quite a, quite a fair few of them go to Germany. That's where they... Yeah. Start Probably feel, feel quite at home because the countries are very icy as people and as um, industry and politics probably very very similar yeah and so, then says a lot yeah we should have lost the war yeah and then the <laughs> irony of that being as well uh, japan beat germany in the world cup didn't they yeah yeah <laughs> that's crazy anyway so it's been a pleasure having you on the last bit of the podcast obviously it's called time for heroes and I ask my guests to pick four heroes or a selection of heroes to come for a fictional dinner party. So I just fire away with who you consider to be your heroes and why, and then what you're going to cook them as well. Right, I've written them down. I did something totally different. Um, I've got a poem called Superheroes, and it, it, it's literally about how all superheroes have fallen by the wayside because the real superheroes in life are real people. Um, the only person I would put on hero status is my granddad. Um, and I'd cook him a Sunday dinner, even though I can't, because that's why I loved him. So I've picked four superheroes that I want to sit around the table, and I want them to be in their costumes, because I want to tell them how they can change the world and stuff like that. I'm going to try and remember them off the top of my head. I want Batman to be there, because Batman didn't have any superpowers, and Batman had more money than you could ever dream of. And I want to sit around with Batman, because I want Batman to solve world poverty. This is turning into a poem. It's like, but um, I want Batman. I want Batman to be there because he's so super rich. He really is. And he owns half of Gotham. But I want him to say, look, get rid of your helicopter. Or, or if you've got all this spare money that he's making you, the equivalent of someone with a superpower, I want you to give a load and solve poverty, global poverty. And I want you to sort the oceans and everything out. So that's one. I want Spider-Man because he was my idol in the 70s. I loved Spider-Man. Um, I remember going and seeing the films when on the, on the telly in the 70s and he was the first superhero. I never read Marvel comics or DC or anything, but Spider-Man, I just loved the agility, the youthfulness because he never went over 16 and he's still only 16, I think. The youthfulness. So he can stop people wanting to have lip filler, Botox, um, have other sort of stuff and worry about Instagram because <laughs> he he has eternal youth to Spider-Man and we will get rid of this narcissistic TikTok because he just hides in the skies and he's the most youthful, brilliant um, person alive and he lives with his aunt. So he's like, he's cool as anything sort of thing and he's sort of thing. Um, Wonder Woman. Because Wonder Woman is from the Amazon and she could sort all the rainforest issues out and stop palm oil being cropped. And and she's pro-feminism and she's she was a forerunner in the 70s and 80s of sexual equality. And so I'd really like Wonder Woman to be there and say that you're a pioneer. And I, I'm struggling to... Re- I know the last <laughs> one is. And, and I want Black Panther. Um because again, Black Panther in the 60s was the only black 
at superhero. Um, and I want Black Panther to be there. And I want him to come on a protest with me and give Malcolm X speeches and be, he's the current of Martin Luther King. So um, I'd want Black Panther to be there because I want him to go around and kill all racist cops that have been shooting all loads of black folk in the Midwest. Um, so, and, and really teach people um, what life's really about. So I've got Black Panther, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man and Batman. And your granddad. And my granddad, yeah. because he'd be there in spirit, because um, all the other people, I, yeah, I'd like my granddad, he, he could cook tea with me, but so if um, so if I had to get rid of one, I couldn't get rid of Batman, because he's got all no, the No, you can keep them, or your granddad's staying with you. Yeah, I, I had my list, and I had them for, for particular reasons of what I see in this world that's a problem. And I, I, I think find the brilliant facts, and the way you've explained that as well is... Um, as you say that, as kind of poetry right there. Yeah, and I have got a poem about all other superheroes, about a black widow was poisoned by the Russians and, and Wasp and Ant-Man, they're now extinct, and, and things like that, because uh, it's the world, and it's like, and it, it comes down to we're the superheroes, and um, we're, we're the people that can change the world by putting an X in the right place at the right time in, in a certain period of time, and we can change the world, and we're the ones that can spread words so you don't need pants on the outside you don't need a cape you don't need a mask we we the the, the, the people make a change um mm. but yeah i chose superheroes because you asked for heroes and uh, it was my wife she went have you thought about superheroes i went i've just written batman down it's like sort of thing so me and my missus were thinking very very much the same so yeah but my granddad is my hero i don't like putting people on pedestals because it gives you somewhere to fall off um i was going to go like very cliche with jim morrison and and people like that, but then I thought, nah. I yeah, no, that, 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 that's They've all been done before. Something. They've all been done. Everyone. Yeah. Um, well, just before we go, I don't know if you've got any poets at your hand. If not, you don't need it, but if you've got like, them, if you want some. If you'd like to revisit something, that would be brilliant. Cool. I'll, I'll give you that superheroes one. Magic. Superman's been furloughed, Spider Superman's been furloughed, Spider Man is on sick leave. Batman soul shares to retire. Thor is skint with a mortgage reprieve. There's a joker running this country and the beam of light is switched off. The telephone kiosk is redundant and the web is full of deceit and rot. The shield is rusty, it's not recycled. And the cape covers unpaid goods. Politicians wear masks to hide their lies. Fat penguins in suits steal kids' food. See, Wolverine is having a pedicure. Iron Man, he loves a spray tan. Elastic Girl, she teaches yoga. The Invisible Man, he's on Instagram. Black Widow was poisoned by Russians. Captain America patrols their walls. Wonder Woman's got a palm oil business and Iceman Ford. You know the globe's too warm. Aquaman chokes on plastic. The Green Lantern's power was cut. The daredevil he sees writing on the wall and Black Panther was shot by a cop. Robin has turned to internet fraud. The Hulk sees a therapist. The ghost rider has sold his prize bike and the wasp and Ant-Man are extinct. See, it's time for new superheroes. You know, Lightning Man has been on strike more than twice. Solidarity and unity, that's our superpowers. It's years since Guy Fawkes has shone bright. See, there's no more listening to riddles, no more listening to media cat calls. See, it's time to put an X on those ballot sheet people and avenge those villains in parliamentary halls. We are the superheroes. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much for doing that. That's classic. Cheers. It fits really well. 
Um, I've, I've, I've just written one on Disney princesses. <laughs> and it's just to show, because we live in a non-binary world now, and we live in a world of a lot more equality, that every little girl doesn't need to believe that a man is going to come and save her and he's going to give her a kiss and she's going to live happily ever after. It's like a fairy tale of like, no, nah, women, you're as strong as bloke. You don't have to stand for that rubbish. You go forge your own careers. You go do this and do that. So I've turned every Disney princess or every other princess known into an alternative gnarly or whatever person in line with their story and said, look, girls, you're as equal to us. You don't need a prince. If you want a princess, go run off with another princess because that's the life and it should be equally to be able to do what you want. So I've done one on Disney princesses and it's it's very relatable to younger people as well so they can listen and go, yeah, that's all right. If I've got different feelings, I can do whatever I want. It's liberating. So I've, I've written yeah. one about that. I've not rehearsed it or even performed it yet, but it will come out in the future when I get to learn it. Brilliant. So on that note then, where can people... Find your stuff, your books, your Leon stuff, your that stuff. Where can we find it all? I'm on Facebook as Leon the Pig Farmer. I'm on Instagram as Leon TPF71. I'm also on Twitter as Leon underscore pig. The dirt are on Instagram as the dirt, but instead of an I, it's a one. And we're on as the dirt or the dirt psych zone on Facebook. We have got a band camp page, the dirt 71. And lulu.com if you put in Jack Horner and titles of Don't Believe the Hype or Talking Myself Out of Trouble you will find my books but I always have a stock of books that I take to gigs and I sell them cheaper you can get them on Amazon and I say this at every gig do not go to Amazon and buy my books because mm. they fund a space project out of a 15 quid book I get £1.80 and I can't afford then to give them to money to charity whereas if you buy a book off me for 13 quid at least money goes to the artist um, the producer of the book with me, the digital marketer, and money goes to charity. So it's it works. It works better for everybody that everyone apart from billionaires get a cut if it's if you don't buy them online. So yeah. yeah, so I'm everywhere on social media. You can find if you put Lee on the pig farmer in, I come up. You see videos of me. I'm battling with a film at the moment for supremacy, but uh, I'm everywhere on the internet, and I put all my gigs up there. And if any promoters want me. To, like, it was great like um, down at Shine I, I've done introductory sets for bands like EMF and, and other stuff and collaborate with other musicians so I, I do music gigs which I love doing as much as the spoken word side so yeah um, Brilliant. available for all, all four corners of the British Isles cool. um, I'll, post yeah, all your, I'll post our links in on the show notes so as people can get a hold of you um, Brilliant. thank you very much mate and as as I say, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. Cheers, pal. Absolute star. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1 or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com. You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can. 
share with others and more importantly enjoy.